uh, we are in, I almost said Hebrews, uh, we are in uh, Exodus chapter 20. So turn there with me, I will read the word of God and then we will jump in today. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17, hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Make sure we get it all in there. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you You shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and... Rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbors. May God had a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We begin this morning 11 weeks. We've been in this for 11 weeks. Uh, uh, t- uh, sermon series on the Ten Commandments, a, a gospel perspective. I don't think uh, it's overstated to, for me to say that probably the Ten Commandments is the most influential law code ever given. And I'm going to argue through this series, as we go through the Ten Commandments, uh, that they were and are not God's Ten Suggestions, okay? It wasn't like Moses' bright idea, but God's categorical commands, his requirements. But I'm also going to argue week after week that it's not only God's commands, but it is a gift from God. It is a matter of grace. I want to this morning to recalibrate our brains. Let me just come right out and say that when it's, when we're talking about law, when we're talking about God's law, I want us to rethink, many of us need to rethink what that means. We tend to think of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, as a God of justice and a God of, of law and a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of grace. Now we may not verbally say that, but that's, that's kind of the way we think. But that, is wrong and false. I mean, the book of Revelation we just went through uh, teaches us otherwise, just from that book alone. We like to say that uh, in the Old Testament, the believers in the Old Testament were under law, and Christians, believers in the New Testament, are under grace. You've heard that said before. If what we mean is that the Old Testament saints... Whoop, I'm getting louder. The Old Testament saints... You don't want me to get louder, believe me. 
believed that their salvation was a works-based salvation, that they've got to earn their salvation by obeying the Lord law, then they can be forgiven and redeemed, if that's what you mean by that. And the New Testament is, the, there's, there's a gospel of grace that you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, and that's the only way you can be forgiven. That too is false. That too is false. Recently, we studied the book of Galatians and Hebrews, and uh, we learned that Abraham was saved how? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Salvation was and always will be by grace alone, and faith alone, both Old and New Testament. Therefore, law does not equal Old Testament, while grace or gospel equals New Testament. In fact, when you talk about the law, when you talk about imperatives, when you talk about commands, they are really everything within Scripture, Genesis all the way to Revelation. Chris, I'm still a little bit too loud. Please. Gospel in both Testaments refers to the promise of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The law tells us what we ought to do And it eventually leads us to despair of of not meeting God's righteous standard and then leads us to the gospel of what God has already done in Christ. They work together. Christ meeting the standard as our substitute, taking our punishment on himself, and then we are regarded by faith righteous. His righteousness has been imputed to us. The problem with dealing with and looking at and and studying the law is the problem of the fallen human nature. We tend to see laws not as a means of grace, especially ones we don't like. We see them as suggestions or or restraints that limit our freedom. I mean, the speed limit is 65, but we all know that you could do 70, 72. Right, you know... Don't touch wet paint. Is it really wet? You know, you know. But there are some laws that we think, you know, these are, these are really good laws. And we don't have a problem with that. Right? We're looking around at the airport thinking, I'm glad they're searching that person. I don't mind. We live in a strange time when people want to make their own laws. Everyone thinks what they think is right and what they think is wrong. We decide for ourselves. And, and, and the same people who, who, who tell you what's right and wrong or, or tell you that you have the right to think what you want is right and wrong cross the line of what they think you did was wrong and see if they don't scold you. The problem with deciding for ourselves about law is, was uh, made clear in a book called The Day America Told the Truth. James Patterson and Peter Kim. They observed that they observed uh, in our postmodern culture that there are, and quote, absolutely no moral consensus at all. Everyone is making up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. So they took a survey, and here's what some of theirs in their surveys. I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. I will steal from those who won't really miss it. I will lie when it suits me and helps me, as long as it doesn't do any real damage. I will cheat on my spouse after all, given the chance he or she would do the same. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in every five. This new commandment is moral relativism. The belief that we are free to make up our own rules is based on our own personal preferences. And if we're honest, the laws that we see in our culture or the right and wrong that we see in our culture many times um, is really in conflict with God's laws. The law of God, in particular, Ten Commandments, reveal the very heart of God. Excuse me, the very heart of God, yes, but the very heart of human rebellion because 
We don't like God telling us what to do in our fallen human nature. And yet, biblical, the biblical definition of freedom is not doing whatever we want, but enjoying the benefits of doing what we ought to do. We often think God's laws as restrictive, that God is, he's putting us in, in slavery and, and we can never reach our goals. We can never be fulfilled and, and have our fulfillment, our, our potentials fulfilled. We forget that God's promises to give us abundant life, John 10 and true freedom, John 8, 1, uh, John, yeah, John chapter 8 shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. First John, same apostle who wrote John, writes in First John 5, 3 that God's laws are not burdensome. That's why we are calling this series, Studying the Law of God, Studying the Ten Commandments, we're calling it a gospel perspective. Because in light of the new covenant, in light of the grace of God in the gospel, we not only receive from God a new heart, but according to the promise of the new covenant, he is placing his law on our minds, in our hearts, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 33. When we approach God's moral standard and law with a gospel perspective, we will, with King David, be able to say, well, you know what? I don't have my slides up here with me. What a morning it's was. Can you put on Psalm 19.7? I just looking down, it says slide. I'm like, I don't have it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you, Tony. The law of the, that's David speaking, Old Testament, by the way. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping Of the honeycomb. You see what he's saying? That's gospel perspective. And the reason that David delights in the law is because David delights in grace. David knew what it was like to live in grace. Thank you, sir. He understood forgiveness. He understood that God forgives repentant sinners. He understood that God created the universe... And wired in such a way that he knows best, not you and me. I know that's hard to believe. I think we all think we know best. So the gospel teaches us that God went from putting his laws on stone tablets and now places them in the very heart and mind of the believer. We saw that when we've been studying Hebrews. I look at Jeremiah, I look at Ezekiel. And it's only through the new birth It's only through the new birth, the gospel, can one truly delight in God's laws. So let us begin our study recognizing recognizing that only when we have been renewed by the Spirit through the gospel, we'll be able to see God's law as good, as gracious gift, sweet to the lips. It doesn't mean God's law is only for God's people. God's laws are universal. He's the creator of of all creation, of every man and woman. But it does mean that we need to see a gospel perspective when we see uh, and hear and respond to the law God has laid out. And that's what we're going to do moving forward with each command. How does this command 
How does the gospel reflect? What does the gospel reflect in this command? So what we're going to do today, and I've said this before, if y'all don't like background, context, history, I don't know what to tell you. Go to sleep because that's what we're going to do today. So what I'm going to do is I want to set up the series, giving you some background. Hopefully it'll be helpful. I, I believe it will be. And then we could jump into the first commandment uh, next week. So preamble, like way before uh, the Ten Commandments, the prologue, the give, right before the giving of the commandments. And then just a couple of things we need to keep, uh, perspectives we need to keep as we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. So number one, the preamble. Now you know and I know, I read it earlier, Exodus 20 is the place where God meets Moses on the mountain and gives him the Ten Commandments. But let's do a little background first. Let's go back, way back before that day, before that day to get some context. It's very important, very important that you have a good biblical context of, of, of the giving of God's law. So, actually, in the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus opens with the Hebrew word and. Because it's a continuation of the book of Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah, is written by Moses. And Genesis ends, Exodus begins with the word, Hebrew word, and. Let's go back to Genesis. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates man and woman, male and female, in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. He loves them, he cares for them, he protects them, he provides for them, and then God blesses them, chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature on the earth. Chapter 2, the Lord takes the man, puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Two words used later on for worship. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Everything is yours but the one tree. And we know what happens there. Adam and Eve sinned, they wanted everything, <laughs> they rebelled against his word, they rebelled against his command, they didn't trust his goodness, and sin enters the world, and then we know in Genesis 3.15, what's been called the Protoevangelium, meaning the first gospel in Greek, in, in the Greek language, God steps in and says this, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his seed. The offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we learn in the New Testament, the offspring in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he will come and he will be harmed, but he will fatally wound, wound Satan. God speaks in the middle of a mess. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of sin and rebellion, death, division and judgment, and says, I will save you. I will, I will straighten out the mess that y'all made. And that's the good news, that evil will not last forever. The offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, will fatally strike the serpent's head. The promise God made, the covenant God made in Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis, we, we went through the book years ago, traces, which is really cool, in Genesis 3.15, then Genesis traces the offspring promise from Adam to Seth to Noah and then to Abraham, whom God makes a covenant with. He calls him out of a pagan land, out of pagan worship, and calls him to himself and makes a covenant with him. 
Very important. And he gives them a couple of promises. Uh, several promises, but three major promises. He promises Abraham in his covenant, he'll give him a land, a place to dwell. He'll give him a lineage. He'll give him a, a, a descendants that the sand of the seashore and the, the stars that don't number will be like his descendants. And the Lord himself, the seed of the woman, will come from Abraham. The Messiah will come from your seed. Then that promise went from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And God chose Abraham and the Israelites out of sovereignty, out of his purposes. They were descendants of Abraham, God's people, heirs of the covenant. It was nothing, it's very important you understand this. It was nothing, God did not look down and say, you know what, this people group, what a, what a bunch of sweethearts. They need, deserve salvation. I think they're so nice to everyone, I'm going to rescue them and save them. That is not what happened, okay? That is not what happened. Exodus 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, I chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest, fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We'll get to that in a minute. So if you remember, Genesis ends. God keeps his promise to Abraham and his sons. And let me tell you, just like you and I, they were sinners. But God is faithful. And the book of Genesis ends where? Where was God's people? In Egypt. I don't have time to rehearse the whole thing, but you know the story. The cruel actions of, of, one, of jo- Jacob's sons. One of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had a son. His name was uh, Pride and Joy. His name was Joseph. They, they, they beat up Joseph, threw him in a pit, sold him to slavery. And then through all these hardships and trials, Joseph rises to power and becomes second in charge of Egypt, of all of Egypt. The people of God are in Canaan still. Joseph rises to power and a famine comes. And Joseph says, let's store food and grain in storehouses for the coming famine. Well, the Israelites are in Canaan, and the famine strikes, and they have no food, and they are about to die, all of God's people. And then Jacob takes his sons and goes to Egypt for food, where he finds Joseph, his son, who he thought was dead, who was sold off to slavery by his cruel other sons. And it was during that famine that they meet and they encounter. And the story ends, Jacob dies, And the story ends that God's people were starving in Canaan, ready to die. They go to Egypt, they see Joseph, and they are fed, and they are saved. They are rescued, in a sense, at least with food. And they survive, and they prosper in Egypt. But then Exodus opens with a new king. And the Egyptians saw that the Israelites were flourishing, like having babies all over the place. And it says in Exodus chapter 1, as God's people is flourishing in Egypt, finally being fed and cared for, it says that a new king arose. He did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the Israelites are way too many and way too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let, lest they multiply. And if, if war breaks out, then they join armies and fight against us and, and they'll escape the land. The book of Exodus is, 
Exodus is this continuation of the promise of Genesis 3.15 to Adam, the promise God makes to Abraham and the covenant God makes to Abraham, God's faithfulness to him, and God's faithfulness to the people of God in his deliverance. In fact, Exodus means departure. And it shows, Exodus shows Israel's bondage and demonstrates God's faithfulness in liberating his people. And when this new Pharaoh came to power, he cha- everything changed. Israelites were, were deprived and destitute slaves. They were treated ruthlessly. They were, they were, they were caused to, to, to serve the Egyptians in slavery, hard service, mortar and brick. And, and, and what's very important, and I, you need to see this, and we're going to get to Genesis 20, but this is really important. You need to see that what Exodus teaches us is the misery of slavery is a reality for all of us. It's a spiritual reality. Exodus shows us that slavery, as Israel is serving and worshiping false gods, are trapped to, anyway, enslaved to, that ultimately serving and worshiping anything more important than God, treasuring anything more important than God, is slavery. Remember, Moses did not simply say to Pharaoh, let my people go, although you may hear that. Oh, Moses kept saying, let my people go. That's not true. There's more to it, no matter what Charleston Heston said. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go so they may worship me. Let my people go so that they may sacrifice to me. Set them free from bondage and slavery to worship the one true God. Slavery, freedom to worship. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 2 Peter 2.19, they promised them freedom, false teachers, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person is uh, to that, he is enslaved. Human nature, fallen human nature is enslaved. We are seeking, clinging, running to, grasping something or someone to give us meaning, that we matter, give us significance, security, that we're okay. We're enslaved to anything that is more central, more significant, more substantial, more important than God. It becomes our enslavement. And putting things where God alone needs to be as our first and foremost treasure brings us into slavery. Yet God, in his, in his love and grace, hears the cries of his people. Hears the cries of his people and responds. He responds to their suffering. Even though they're sinners, even though they're in bondage and in slavery, Exodus 2 says this, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant, his unconditional covenant with Abraham while they're in slavery in Egypt. Unconditional covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Exodus' story of God's love and grace as he raises up Moses as the deliverer. How in his love and in his grace, he sends the plagues against Egypt, the one who are holding God's people in slavery. He is the one in his grace and his love who divides the Red Sea. He, in his love and grace, drowns the Pharaoh's army who's coming after the Israelites. God, in his love and grace, is the one who provides bread from heaven, water from the rock. God, in his love and grace, redeems and rescues and delivers his people from slavery and bondage. And that moment of the exodus is the, is the defining moment for the Israelites. So before we turn to the immediate prologue in chapter 19 and 20 of Exodus, we need to see that as far back as Adam and Eve, 
God has been graciously working with sinners to keep his promise by delivering his people from slavery and preserving them so that the offspring will come. His name is Jesus. You've got to understand that context. Look at the prologue. Turn, if you have a Bible, Acts, excuse me, Exodus chapter 19. So, before we get to chapter 20, we're in chapter 19. This is after the plagues, after the Passover, after the Red Sea, after the escape. They're out of, they're out of Egypt. They, they're in the wilderness wandering, right? And in chapter 19, verse 1, very important. There's a prologue to the giving of the law. On the third moon... Three months after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, verse 3. While Moses went up to God. Camped in the mountain, Moses goes up to God. Actually goes up several times in chapter 19. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you where? To myself. Moses comes to a full circle. Chapter 3, he meets God in Hebron, which is Sinai. In the burning bush, God reveals himself and sends them to Pharaoh. Now he's back with, with the, and he's returned to that same place with the newly redeemed people. God tells Moses, tell the people the obvious. You guys just saw how, what was going on in Egypt and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, eagles are depicted in the Old Testament as, as two things, actually, in the Old Testament. They care for the weak, just as God cared and carried Israel out of slavery into freedom or into the wilderness. And they're depicted as fierce birds of prey. And God, we see, acted as this fierce predator taking them out of Egypt. And carrying them to the land of safety. So as eagle wings, he delivers them. Not only are the Israelites, look at the text, to remember what God has done. But that memory, that reality, look at the text, is to motivate them to obey. Something was expected of them. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Stop. Let, let's be really clear. Israel's faithfulness to this covenant in no way should be understood to mean that Israel worked for this redemption. This entire scene on the mountain, the laws that will follow are grounded on verse 4, what God has already done. The Israelites are not to keep the law in order for God to save them. They are already saved. He has already brought them out of Egypt. The Israelites had been delivered from bondage, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, and now they are obligated. The ones who are already saved, it was expected of them since they were already redeemed. The people did not earn their salvation, but once saved, they are obligated to, to walk in a manner worthy of their high calling. And when they respond in obedience, it says that he will be what? His treasured possession, his royal property. 
among all the earth that belongs to me, God says. Talk about a monotheistic one God concept, right? All belongs to me. And it speaks of the separation of a chosen people, chosen from, from general population. And it says you're going to be a, they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See that? It's their role to stand between sinful man and a holy God. It was given to Israel. Right? They, they were the ones that were going to dispense truth and justice. And, and, and they were the ones who were going to show forth the holiness of God to the world. Israel was to function as holy nation, as a royal priesthood. Does that sound familiar? First Peter, New Testament. You are a chosen race, church. A people of his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. So in the New Testament, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to give him glory, praise, and honor. So God is telling the Israelites who he is, and now he's telling them who they are. They're the, the precious chosen one to serve and to love and to worship God, to spread to the nation his glory. There, there is a global implication of that passage. Israel was not only, Israel was chosen not only from the nations, but now that he's being sent for the nations. Same with the church. Israel is the means by which God will unfold his plan, and he does that through the manifestation and, and the gospel proclamation of the church. The rest of chapter 19, we don't have to look at it. We won't. God is preparing his people to meet them on the mountain. For them to meet him on the mountain, he's like, you all got to consecrate yourself. Um, you know, you better set a perimeter because when I come down, I'm holy, all sinners, and everyone's going to die. Don't even touch the mountain. It shows forth God's glory, shows forth God's purity, and it shows forth our depravity. And God's like, when I come down, everyone's dying, so you all better just stand back. When we get to chapter 20... Moses receives the Ten Commandments. I just so, so you know, the word Ten Commandments is not in Scripture, actually. The word uh, used to express the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew text is simply ten words. The ten words. That's why chapter 20, some of you have been around the church a while, called the Decalogue. Deca meaning ten, lago, lagos meaning words. When we get to chapter 20... We read this. Now remember, they're at the Mount Sinai to receiving the law... From God through Moses. And God spoke all these words. Okay? Who spoke them? God. Any of us him? No. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See a pattern here? In this preamble, God is characterized as this great king who speaks who has just rescued this helpless people from the clutches of this oppressive rule. But this rescue does not leave them to themselves. In other words, God has not rescued them and said, now you're on your own to be invaded and, and tyrannized again. No, God assumes the reign of Israel as its redeemer king. He calls them. Like what they, what they, in the ancient days, this suzerain uh, a lord who conquers people, he now, he claims, you know, he, he declares who he is and he declares uh, their, his loyalty over the vassal, the people that he just rescued or at least conquered and now wants to protect. That's, that's Old Testament. 
And see the same thing here with God. He is personal though, as you see here. A couple things you want to notice. Number one, he is personal. The God is not just the Lord. Look what it says. The Lord, your God. Right? So God is just not out there. He, he's personal. He, he's not just capricious dictator. He's not a capricious dictator. Irritable deity. No, he's personal. He's caring and he's loving for his own people. Notice that in that text. Second thing noticed in this text is he's the one who redeemed Israel. Again, we keep seeing this over and over, reminding Israel of her gracious redemption. If God came to Moses while still in Egypt and said, I want you to tell my people, if you, and he says the same thing, if you, Keep my commandments. If you keep my covenant, I will rescue you from tyranny. That would be one thing. But that's not what he says. That's not what happens. Because if that were the case, they'd still be there. We would still be there. No. God is a God of grace. He saves his people first. Then he calls them to obey the law. One commentator wrote this. The people have already been freed by divine grace and power. They are not, they are not given the law to save themselves, but so that they might continue to enjoy the salvation they have already been given, end quote. It's paramount, family. It's paramount that we understand these two elements of giving of the law. The law is not revealed to God's people as means of their salvation. To earn their salvation, they're already saved. And now God is revealing himself to them in their redemption. So I want you to catch this. God's moral standard, God's law, reflected in the Ten Commandments, is a reflection of his character, is a reflection of his attributes. The law is an expression, listen, the law is an expression of the lawgiver. The commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. They say something about his honor, his glory, his worth, and his majesty. If we scorn the moral law of God, we scorn the lawgiver. When we break God's law, we are making a direct assault against God himself. The first commandment to worship no other gods is to deny, if we violate that, is to deny the sovereignty of God. To break the third command, to misuse his name, is to deny him his honor. To steal is to deny his providence, his care for his people. To lie is to deny his truthfulness. God does not change his moral attributes. Therefore, his law is perpetually binding. It, 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 it remains in force for all people in all places. So as we get to this prologue, we see God rescuing Adam. We see the promise given to Abraham who was delivered and called to himself out of a pagan land even even when there, there's sin on the earth and, and his family sins. God is still keeping his promise. God rescues them, brings them out of Egypt by miraculous redemption and deliverance. God brings them into the desert and then God speaks and reveals who he is and reminds them what he has done. Okay, everybody got that? Let's look at this lastly at the pursuit. So there's a couple things we need to understand. Number one, the law is good. 
Many people see the law of God and give it a negative, uh, uh, you know, kind of a very negative uh, view. But the law is also positive. It was honey to the lips of King David. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is what? Holy. Why? Because God is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans, New Testament. Because God is all those things. But it is only good, it is only sweet to our lips if we understand it through the gospel. We'll get there. We must read the law in its historical, covenantal, redemptive context so that when we see the beauty of, uh, of God and we see the beauty of his law, we will gaze inevitably upon Christ who alone fulfills the law. I came across a verse. I'm going to read it to you. You, those of you who've been in church um, for a while, who've been taught, you know, we're under grace, we're under grace, we're under grace, and we are, we are. And like the Old Testament, they're, they're under the law, under the law. They were told, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And that's the only way to be saved, is by just following the precepts of God. Yet in the Old Testament, Moses instructs the people of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I don't think I have it up there. Yes, I do. This is how y'all to, 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 to see and read the law. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? What's the meaning? Just do what he says. No. Then you will say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves. Wait, 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 wait. You're asking about the law of God. We were enslaved but Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your salvation. Even in the Old Testament. We see the law, this legal document, this covenant between God and his people, yet still should be viewed within grace. Now, we, we know that there are 600, maybe you don't know, but there are about 613 laws, I think, was, was the number of, of, of the Old Testament laws. And the Ten Commandments, like the Constitution, think of it of the United States Constitution. I'm not going to get political. But just think of it as the United States Constitution, where you have the Constitution is the foundation of all the other laws. When there's a, a, an argument of a law, they take it, what? To the Constitution. At least they're supposed to. All right, that was, that slipped. But they're supposed to. The Ten Commandments are foundational, and all the other laws come out of the Ten Commandments. Now, the law of God has three functions. According to biblical scholars, reformers did the same thing. Let me just mention them quickly. The law of God was given for a function, what they call governmental or civil. The image of God has been impressed on every person, Romans 2. And God's law reveals justice and what's right and wrong. And, and we are to follow civil authorities number one, because we are, we are made in the image of likeness of God, there's some freedom that we have, and because we're sinners, there needs to be justice. Right? We want, we want, a lot of times people won't do certain things. Why? Because the law, the police, the prisons. The first use of the law is to deter people in society to do evil things. Okay? You all could see that. I know I can. I've been in trouble. The pedagogal, what they call pedagogal, is, 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 is where the law educates us. It teaches us. It shows us that we have fallen short. Galatians chapter 3. That we have 
fallen short. So it is a way in which it teaches us this is God's holy standard. This is his perfection. This is our, our obligation. This is what he expects from us. And we look at that and say, we can't do that. It teaches us that we are sinners, and it drives us then for salvation, for redemption, for forgiveness, because we cannot do those things. And hopefully we come to the place that it teaches us, points us to Christ, that we cry out, forgive me, O Lord, and we receive forgiveness. Drives us to despair, and it brings us to Christ, who died for our sins, who lived that perfect life in our place. And if you've never done that, when you see God's law, let it drive you to Christ. The last part, which I want to talk about, is what's called normative. That the law was given for guidance. The law no longer condemns the believer because Christ has lived that perfect life. But now it is a guide for Christian behavior. We have said this before. We're not under the law. Right? Under the law, Galatians, we, we, we saw that before. Trying to win God's approval. That's what it means to be under the law. We win, to try to win God's approval. Acceptance to be forgiven through our moral performance. That we obey and then God will love me. That's under the law. We're not over the law. God, you don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. But the law is now our guide. It can't save us. But it is a guide. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through the perfect moral record of Jesus. But the moral law becomes our guide and how we to live our life. Okay, Romans 13. The Apostle Paul wants us to, to, to give a summary of what it means to be a believer living in obedience to God. And what does he do? He looks at the Ten Commandments. Chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another fulfills the law. That's cool. For the commandments, now he's pointing out the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Have you heard that before? You shall not covet. I just read it at the beginning of the service. Or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul said that the Ten Commandments, he lays it out, are a way in which people follow and love one another. When we love, we fulfill the commandments. When we obey the commandments, we're fulfilling the law of love. The New Testament teaches us the same thing, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians chapter 5. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for sin. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, in a book called The Whole Christ, said this. We're talking about guidance. We're talking about following the law as a guidance for our life. This is what he said. This is a great quote. Love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. Because love requires direction and principles of operation. Love is motivation, but it is not self-interpreting direction. I don't make the decisions. Commandments, he says, are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides that direction. The notion that love can operate apart from the law is a figment of the imagination. It is not only bad theology, it is poor psychology. It has to borrow from law to give eyes to love. End quote. 613 laws. All of them matter. They all teach us something about God. And Jesus 
summarizes it in the New Testament. Love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. We see him unpacking that in Matthew chapter 5. We'll get to that later. Okay? We'll get to that later. In other words, Jesus lives... Now hear me, I'm almost done. Jesus lives his perfect life, fulfills the law, gives it his true meaning in Matthew 5, and then empowers us to live it. Okay, empowers us. Now, we're talking about the moral law. We'll talk about the other aspects of the law tomorrow, uh, next week. And then he gives us and empowers us. He puts his laws on our hearts. He puts our laws on our minds. And he empowers us to live in a way which God calls us to live. Will we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Part of the problem, I said earlier, is the fallen human nature. We see God's law as restrictive. We see God's laws as hurtful. We see God's laws as this impersonal God just yelling at us things we ought to do. The word law in Hebrew is the word Torah. And do you know that Proverbs picks that word up, Torah, law, when he's talking to his sons about wisdom, about life. And I think that's a good way to look at from a gospel perspective. Is that when we see the moral standard of God, it's a good father loving his children. Just like you all parents, many of you are. Well, you had good parents. Hopefully some didn't say, you know, go play in traffic. Here's a dollar, right? My parents love me. I love my children. I, I'm, I'm laying down. Don't, don't stick your finger in the side. There are things I'm telling my child because I love them. And my, my standard, my law, the things I want for my children are coming from me because I love them. That's the way we have to, through the gospel, see the moral standard of God. It's God's loving me and showing me and telling me what I ought to do and not to do for my good and his glory. Only through the gospel can you see that. Because he becomes your heavenly father. You've been redeemed, washed, and cleansed by the blood. Now, secondly, and you need to hear this clearly today. Redemption, deliverance, and our salvation is not the reward for obedience. Redemption, deliverance, salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience, Kevin DeYoung. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Jesus did not say, if you obey me, If you obey my commands, I will love you. Instead, he gathers his disciples, washes their feet, and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All of our doing, all of our obeying is only because of what was done for us, that God redeemed us by grace alone. And now we can serve God and walk wholeheartedly in obedience to Christ, knowing uh, uh, that he loves us, not fearing the law, but delighting in its precepts. We gain freedom Through the gospel, not through the law, but the freedom we gain through the gospel is a freedom to obey with our whole hearts. There's no fear anymore. We cannot conform perfectly to the law. We know that. But we ought to never to approach the law as though we can, but we are to respond in obedience because of all that Christ has done. So if we're working hard and we're listening and responding, and some of you need to hear this too, it's easy to slip into that, that, that idea that if I keep obeying, I keep doing, I'm following, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing all those things, and now because I'm doing all those things, God's going to love me, God's going to accept me. And that's a very bad motivation. That's religion, that's not the gospel. And when we have that wrong motivation, we're guaranteed to live in a wrong relationship with God and with others. 
And that's why it's important to see this law. That the law is given as a moral reflection. We can't, we can't live up to it. Christ dies in our place. He fulfills the law perfectly. He imputes his righteousness to us. He fills us with this Holy Spirit. We're forgiven. And now we can radically be obedient because knowing that God loves, forgives every sin. We've been forgiven for every sin. And we can live in obedience to Christ as a foundation of pleasing God. I've used this illustration, then we'll close. I'm going to use it one more time. Maybe I'll get sick of it, but I think it's good. Is there something you love to do? Is, it maybe, is, there, is there something that you really like? Maybe it's a musical instrument, or maybe you love uh, sports. There are things that we love to do, and when we do it, we find joy in it, and we just love doing it. But do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Nothing you do in this life is perfect. Sorry to tell you, it's not. But what do we do every day if we love doing it? We get up and we do it again. A ball player looks to get a hit every time, to make a catch in the outfield every time. Does he? No, but he tries. As blood-bought children of God, redeemed, rescued, forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future, who have been counted righteous because of the perfect life of Christ, because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, his imputed righteousness on my behalf, I am now radically able to obey God in all the aspects of my life. And as we like to sing, our chains are gone, our debt is paid, the cross has overthrown the grave, for Jesus' blood sets me free, means death to death and life for me. Once we understand grace, law and obedience in the right order, with the right motive, we can live in the freedom and joy of knowing, obeying the one who gave his life for us. Does that make sense? The good news of the true gospel, justified by faith alone, not only removes our guilt and forgives us of our sin, but transforms us by the regenerating work of the Spirit, empowers us to obey by the Spirit, all by a gift of grace. Grace enables us to live a life pleasing to the Lord. But at the end of the day, grace is also the grounds. And the only sufficiency of our forgiveness when we fail. We belong to God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. It cannot be by following the moral standard of God. But we are rescued and redeemed Sinners who now, in response to the covenant, the new covenant, washed in Jesus' blood in obedience to Christ. Get that mixed up, and you're in bondage to religion. Get it right, and there is joy and freedom and, and, and love and, and obedience and holiness and sanctification for your life. As we get into these Ten Commandments, we have to see it from a gospel's perspective. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your law as a reflection of who you are. Lord, we know we can't live in complete obedience. We are sinners. That's why we cry out to Jesus for redemption, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, there is nothing can separate us from you, not even our sin. Lord, as we confess and repent, your blood, Lord Jesus, still flows from Calvary. So, Lord, out of love and gratitude and thanksgiving of the redeeming work of Jesus, we give our whole life to you. Help us, Lord, to live in obedience to your word. Knowing when we fail, we are washed and cleansed. May we never, ever try to earn our salvation. And may we never, ever be so beat up by our sins that we can't receive your 
forgiveness, Lord. Help us walk with a gospel perspective in Jesus' name. Amen.